how unified is a um, is a Stoic worldview? The Stoics think that you know the entire universe is imbued with this active principle, mm -hmm. which they identify with God. I really appreciate that you're going in on the metaphysics of Stoicism. One of those is you know broicism, which is what we call people who adopt this like feel no pain, never cry in front of other people, <laughs> be a man. And I do think that John is intentionally speaking to Stoics as well as Jews. And he says, in the beginning was the Logos. The Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Setacase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. This is a very special episode. We're going to be talking about stoicism today. So I know a lot of my audience members are going to be all jazzed about that. Some of the analytic folks might be a little upset, but that's okay. I like to trigger those folks anyways. Uh, I have with me Michael Tremblay, and we're going to be talking about some of his dissertational work on Stoicism and Epicurus. Epictetus? Epicurus. No, I need to know. I could just ask him, but I want to get this right. Epictetus, dude. All right. Um, okay, Epictetus. And we're just going to talk about Stoicism in general. What is it? Uh, who counts as a true Stoic? Uh, we'll see. We'll get into the good stuff. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen on YouTube members and on Patreon. If you guys want more of this stuff and you don't want me to like go broke and be impoverished, then please consider becoming a Patreon patron uh, or a YouTube member. You could join for as little as like three bucks a month all the way up to like 50 bucks a month. Uh, everything helps. Really, really appreciate it. If I had like a thousand of you guys at five bucks a month, that would be very cool. So uh, please, if I'm in your top five, top 10 favorite podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron or a YouTube member. Also, if you guys are listening audio on Apple, a lot of you are, please consider leaving a note. Don't consider. Just do it. Leave me a five-star review. Leave me a comment. That would be huge. Analytics help the pod and help me feed my dogs. So Without further ado, let's get into why all that was wrong, because I should have been more stoic about it. Um, no, we're going to jump in with Michael, and uh, we're going to figure some stuff out. Here we go. Michael, yeah. thanks so much. Thanks so much for coming to the podcast, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is awesome. Um, dude, you, you – so we, we got connected over Twitter because you also do jujitsu. Um, well, what belt are you? I forgot. I'm a black belt, second dude. degree black belt. Yeah. Pretty epic. Uh, where, where do you train at? Uh, so I'm in Toronto. So I train at Open Mat in Toronto. My dad actually runs a school. So I've been doing jiu-jitsu since I was a little kid. Nice. And so I'm like, started maybe like 1998 at six, technically. You know, back then it wasn't it wasn't super popular. Yeah. Um, and then just, yeah, just kept doing it. Just didn't stop. And that's that's really the advice I would give anybody thinking about getting good at jiu-jitsu. Just don't stop. Yeah. Um, everybody I know that is still doing it is now quite good, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Man, that's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. You got in before it was cool. Now it's been exploding, man. Mostly because of uh, Joe Rogan, I would say, but yeah, the pop, the podcast world is favorable towards jujitsu, which is cool. Yeah. It's a good, it's a, it's a niche. Uh, the Venn diagrams really intersect uh, between yeah. those two interests. Um, I, I like jujitsu. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that it's getting more popular because I think it's a positive thing for people. I'm glad that more people are doing it. Yeah. Um, but it 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 is always going to be kind of obscure and niche. It's always going to be, um, it's never going to be soccer or hockey or anything like that. Well, I'm yeah. from Canada, so you know hockey up here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it'll it always it'll always stay there. But it is bigger now. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, Michael, so we, um, we're going to get into stoicism. Um, so 
before we do, I wanted to introduce you to the audience a little bit more. Where did you uh, do your dissertational work at? Yeah, so I did my PhD at Queen's University, which is in Kingston, Canada. Um, that's just across the border from New York, just just mm. north of there, um, New York State. And uh, in my PhD, I focused on moral education and Stoicism. So the question that was always really interested, I was really interested in philosophy as a way of life, mm. interested in philosophy as a, as a mechanism by which to live better because yeah. I'm, I'm interested in living as well as possible. And I thought philosophers were the people who took those questions really seriously. And ancient philosophers in particular took those questions very seriously. Um, and so moral education is this question, the way that I like to frame it of, you know, not what it means to be a good person, but once you've agreed what, what a good person is, how do you become that kind of person? How do you hmm. cultivate virtue and transform your character? And so I, I, I focused on Epictetus. And I can go into as much or as little detail, you know, depending on, on how, how nitty gritty you want to get into it. But he's, yeah. he's one of the Stoics, one of the more famous Stoics, and he ran a school. So I was really looking at his educational program, basically, and the intersection of theory and training, which, you know, as a martial artist, which is something you can empathize with, was something that was of interest to me. You know, how much, yeah. of, how much of skill development, because the Stoics looked at character as kind of a skill or craft, how much of that is theoretical? And then how much of that is practice, habituation, training, and what might those training exercises look like? Yeah. No, that's awesome, man. Did, did jujitsu like inform your decision to go on and, and study stoicism? Yeah, totally. Well, for a couple of reasons. From like a theoretical reason, I was just always interested in self-improvement. And yeah. I viewed, you know, martial arts in a way as this kind of, or sport as this kind of physical improvement, physical craft, and then philosophy as, as this really kind of abstract intellectual craft it was the yeah. one where you didn't specialize you kind of stayed at the high level kind of like mixed martial arts of thinking or something like this <laughs> and then on a more practical level you know i was a pretty competitive jitsu uh you know jitsu guy for a while i was you know i did worlds every year i did pan ams um i did the abu dhabi pro a couple times nice. um so grad school was actually really good for that because you know you you'd sit and think all day sit and read all day and then you'd be like i've got to move my body and then i'd go train at night so it's not like i had a physical job where you know people that I know that physical jobs that impedes their training, but I was yeah. able to train really hard because my job was very, not physical, very intellectual. <laughs> no, that's all dude. I hundred percent resonate with you. And, uh, even some days when I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm gonna go to jujitsu today after just sitting around all day reading, it's like, I, I'm going to die. I have to go and <laughs> put hands on somebody. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. No, that's it, so good. It's uh it's it's for it's for your own sake. It's like it's it's um kind of resets you mm -hmm. in a way that's really beneficial. Anybody who trains would know that or anybody, you know, I if you if you're not exercising, I would recommend that as a way to kind of help your thinking for sure. Yeah, definitely. So one of the cool uh, I, some of the audience is going to be upset with the jujitsu stuff. We're we're going to we're going to get on to stoicism, but it's not every day I get to talk jits with a uh, with uh, a guest. So one of the cool things about jujitsu that I found, uh, which is different than wrestling, I started wrestling probably sounds like when you started jujitsu, first grade or something like that. And uh, wrestling is a tight knit community. We're all the same type of person. We look at the world the same way. Jujitsu is not like that at all. 
You could mm -hmm. be a, a skinny, scrawny, a tall, lanky dude. You could be a short little lady. You could be whoever, and you're going to have some different style that you can do, which is going to match up better or worse against someone else's style. So that's that's one of the things I've really come to appreciate about jujitsu is the like diversity in styles, and like, literally anyone can do it. Well, maybe not literally. Any, very many, very different uh, types of people can do jujitsu, which is really cool. Yeah, I mean, that was one thing I wanted to mention when you brought up the third, I guess, connection between philosophy and martial arts is that martial arts for me has always had an ethical component. Mm. Um, you know, so my dad, who was my coach, he started in karate. Um, and so especially Eastern martial arts has this really, you know, this kind of Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. And this idea of there's no point in being the kind of person who can fight people and just uses that to beat people up or be a bully. Something's gone very wrong and you're, not only are you a bad person, but you, you're a bad martial artist in that case. Mm. And um, I'm not to generalize about wrestling. I wrestled. I wrestled in university. Um, although you know Canadian university wrestling is a bit a uh, bit less intense than American collegiate wrestling. Um, but I think wrestling is very much a sport, and there's a lot of value to sport. Mm. Um, there's a lot of character value to sport, and a lot I love about sport. Um, but I, I, in my impression, I didn't feel like wrestling was a martial art, and maybe that's why. Jiu-Jitsu can attract a wider variety of people because, you know, the, the the purpose of doing it is not just excellence at the sport. It's not just fitness. Hmm. Uh, the purpose is more inclusive. And you see that kind of reflected in the way that uh, the classes are taught and the way that, you know, hopefully the, the cultures of the clubs. Yeah, no, yeah, that's, that's good. I, that's fascinating. Everyone can, most people can do Jiu-Jitsu. Not everyone can do wrestling. Um, yeah, that's, that's well, I think I think more people more people could wrestle if and we could get in we could have this whole conversation about martial arts. The problem with wrestling is the culture, right? That that mm -hmm. connects to the sport thing. The reason why most people can't wrestle is because when you go to a practice, they're gonna say go hundred percent and either quit or get better. And that's just not the way jiu classes are taught. Jiu classes are taught to be inclusive, to promote technique, but um to to be okay with not going intensely. That's the real cultural difference. And I think that's that sport martial arts divide as I think at least. Yeah. Um, I, I lost you there for a second. I hope that um, it was still recording you. Um, can you repeat it just in case I, I can edit this back, but um, yeah. you were saying that the real, the real problem the real difference with uh, wrestling is the culture. Yes. Yeah, so saying in the culture of wrestling is it's a sport. So you start as a kid, then you do high school, then you do college, then you're either national team or Olympic team. And then you stop doing it. Right. Yeah. Because the goal is uh, athletic excellence yeah. where I think martial arts, the goal is um, self-development, self-improvement. And that is, that's viewed more inclusively. So the classes are set up to allow more people to do it because yeah. at the end of the day, it's just, it's just grappling, right? Wrestling is it, wrestling is grappling with people jitsu is grappling with people so when you say not everybody can wrestle that's physically not the case it's it's culturally the case is that mm. if, if you go there as a 50 year old smaller woman to uh uh at your local wrestling club you're probably going to get hurt or you're probably going to be confused because they're not going to know what to do with you yeah that's fascinating so i, I was thinking probably more from um like physically it's higher impact as well like just the, the sport of wrestling. You don't think so? I just don't think so. I just think, okay. I think it is, it is higher impact because you're doing it more intensely, mm. right? There's, you got, you got 80 year olds doing judo, right? Um, and the reason mm -hmm. for that is because of the Eastern, again, I think because judo conceptualizes it as, as a martial art, conceptualizes that as wanting 70 year olds, 60 year olds in that room. 
Dude, that's fascinating. Okay, this is this is opening up my mind here. Hmm. I would like to keep wrestling. It's very hard for me. If I'm not in good shape, I can't go back and roll with my college wrestling team. So I have to like get in shape in order to go wrestle with those guys where I can just go do jujitsu. But also like dude, okay, so even the sport, it's easier to slow people down in jujitsu than it is in wrestling. You know what I mean? Like it's you're saying that maybe the it's the mentality where like I don't know, dude. It seems like the sport is just higher pace. I think, I guess what I'm saying is that excellent wrestling is higher pace. Okay. But what's stopping you from going and doing some shitty wrestling? <laughs> yeah, what, yeah, yeah. What's yeah. stopping you from, from doing the technique slowly in a way that wouldn't work, but you're still on the mat, you're still moving? Right? I think it's just a lot. I, I want to go with you here because I, I want to open up a wrestling club, dude. I miss it. Um, I think it's like if you're actually – if you're going live in jujitsu, you can still slow someone down. The, the gi helps a lot. So maybe it'd be more comparable like no gi, right? I don't know. Maybe you have thoughts on that. But no gi seems like it's a lot faster than gi, right? Yeah, I think you're I think you're right again at a high level. I think I think I mean, don't get me wrong, wrestling is hard. But wrestling is hard from a rule set perspective, you know, as mm-hmm. well. One of the things that's, and we're getting into the nitty gritty of it. Welcome <laughs> to this wrestling that's right. jiu-jitsu podcast. Yeah. Um, like, so for those that don't wrestle, one thing, at least in Canadian freestyle wrestling, which is what we do in Canadian colleges um, and is in the Olympics. If you take somebody down after 10 seconds of inactivity, they stand you back up. In jiu-jitsu, if you get a good position, you could stay there the entire match. So, you know, one thing could happen, you mount the person and you mount them for the whole time. And so I agree when I go to my jiu-jitsu clubs, wrestling practice, I, even though I'm doing that with jujitsu people, I'm like, this is exhausting because we have to keep standing up. We have to keep resetting to neutral mm-hmm. in a way that's really difficult where, um, jujitsu allows you, you know, to really slow things down and dominate a good position yeah. and stay there. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm partial with you that there are differences there. Um, but I guess maybe I'm thinking maybe own at least n- much less of those differences are um, necessary than people think. I'm 100% committed to that. This is this is fast. I'm actually like sweating too. Do you get to think about jujitsu and wrestling? And <laughs> I, I'm like genuinely sweating. This is this is wild. Um, I think that you're right. So I I had in mind American folk style because that's what I did my whole life. I did I only did a, a bit of freestyle. So I, that is another point too. American folk style is like my jam dude i hate freestyle but american folk <laughs> style i love it and that's why i love jujitsu because it's mat wrestling um there's much more mat wrestling though the sport is being ruined uh every year by chopping away at the rule set and making takedowns worth more points and it's really sad but um i i'm i gotta chew on what you said more because this is the first time i've been thinking about that and that you made some really good points really compelling points um dang man that's good well i, I could stay on that the rest of the time let's get into some some stoicism um you you got into it because of this because of your YouTube dude. I'm sorry, I have to ask. Huh? Because you were so early on it, it's really fascinating. How the heck did your dad get into jujitsu before everyone else? Yeah, so my dad has. The, <laughs> I think we go some false advertising if you put stoicism on this podcast. It is a jujitsu podcast now. <laughs> um, so my dad was did some judo, did some boxing, did some wrestling. The big thing back then was pre-UFC, right? Yeah. So before the Ultimate Fighting Championships, things were siloed. This was also pre-internet, right? So you mm-hmm. think of, um, and I know you know this, but also talking for people listening, yeah. um, you know, these disciplines would develop in silos and they wouldn't they wouldn't really have a, 
a training ground to see, you know, which was better than which. Um, and so, you know, my, my dad had done a couple of these, had been pretty competent in this. And then he went to Vegas for business actually. And there was a Gracie school mm. and the Gracie school, you know, had some challenge at the time, which you know, if you beat a black belt, you get a thousand dollars or something. I don't know what the challenge was. And so I was like, well, I'll go in and have some fun with it. And, uh, they put him with a purple belt and the purple belt just beat the shit out of him. Yeah. And he went with the blue belt next and the blue belt beat him worse. And he realized the purple belt was being nice, you know, and he had, he had bounced, he had boxed, he had wrestled. Um, he had done martial arts his entire life. And so it was this real like mind screwy moment. This, uh, I guess this kind of cognitive dissonance or this paradigm shift of, I, I thought I was this and I've realized that I'm not, I thought I was the kind of person that was, that could handle themselves or, you know, could beat other people. Um, you know, certainly somebody who's only doing grappling or only coming at me with one style. Um, and so he, he does the story of, he goes home, he's at his, you know, his boxing club and he's sitting under the heavy bag and he says, I'm either going to quit martial arts entirely because this is all bullshit or I'm going to switch and start doing jujitsu. And that was the, mm. that was kind of the mind shift shift moment. But back then, you know, he was in Ontario, Canada. He had to fly down to Miami to train. Um, it really wasn't wow. accessible in the way it was. It is now. Yeah. That's insane, man. That's so cool. So it does go back to the Gracie's like the, anyone who was before the UFC, like even, even, you know, the UFC does trace it back to the Gracie's as well, but yeah, that's pretty wild, man. That's really cool. Um, all right, folks, that's 16 minutes. You guys can settle down. Uh, there's some timestamps. I probably should have said it sooner, but there are timestamps. You want to skip the jujitsu, but you shouldn't cause you should be doing jujitsu. Um, dude, so what, what made you want to <clears throat> get a PhD? in in philosophy and, and work on stoicism I, I understand like studying it right but it's a lot of work to go in you know the full way and do the phd what what, what made you want to go the, the full route yeah so um a lot of it connects back to the jiu-jitsu it's just as i said before it's just such a good lifestyle mm. uh when you're training and thinking of really challenge channeling the ancient greek mindset there i was like yeah. I'm, I'm wrestling and then i'm thinking about stoicism yeah, it was a great it was a great fit um but you know, there, there, there's something to be said about a depth of mastery. And I think that again, comes back to the jitsu is this idea of a black belt and the idea that, you know, I, I was a black belt when I started my PhD, I got my black belt just before, just before I started my PhD. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you, when you become excellent at something, you realize that you were not as good as you thought you were when you were an intermediate, yeah. you realize the kind of depth of progression there is there. And I felt the same way about philosophy. I'd done my master's on Epictetus. And it was like, I get stoicism. I get stoicism more than 90% of people, 95% of people, probably 99 if you look at it because it's, it's a little niche. Um, but I didn't have that mastery yet. I didn't have the grasp of it. Um, so I wanted to dive in. And as long as I was passionate about it and enjoying it, I'm the kind of person where it's like, if I like what I'm doing and I'm mm. developing my skills, I'm, I'm getting smarter, or I feel like I'm getting better at something, then, then yeah, then I'm, then I'm going to have a blast doing it. That's awesome, man. Um, we've used the word a few times now, but for those who are uninitiated or you know, there's there's probably confusion around it anyways, what what is Stoicism and, and who gets to call themselves a Stoic? Yeah, so Stoicism is an ancient Greek philosophy. It is a philosophy as a way of life, which means it is all-encompassing. It talks about ethics, metaphysics, epistemology, it connects all of these fields into a holistic worldview about how to live. And Really, with ancient Greek philosophy, is you 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 have Aristotle who said, "Look, the point of philosophy is to understand how to live, is to understand how to flourish, mm. and how to be an excellent person." And then, following Aristotle, a bunch of people had different answers to that question. Well, what does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to flourish? And the Stoics, so the Epicureans, for example, 
Their answer was, you know, a life of as much pleasure and as little pain as possible. That was their answer. Uh, Aristotle's answer was, you know, a combination of goods. There's many good things. You want as many of them as possible. You want to have virtue. Uh, you want to be, you know, socially successful. You want to be you know, physically excellent. You want to have all these good things. And the Stoics' answer was, you know, what it means to have a good life, what it means to be a good person is to have an excellent character. Hmm. It is to perfect what is up to you. Um, I think that's the that's the key ethical claim of Stoicism, is that virtue is not just the highest good, but the only good. And what we mean by virtue here is a good character. Yeah. Um, that's that's really high level. Anything in that you wanted to dig into? Yeah, for man. Um, is 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 fatalism intrinsic to Stoicism? Because that's oftentimes you'll hear. Maybe that's a canard. Maybe that's a trope of fatal of uh, Stoicism. But that like you can't affect what what uh happens outside of you because of fatalism or determinism but you can affect the one thing you can which is your own emotional state yeah so so stoicism we're gonna dig right into the nitty-gritty stoicism is deterministic it thinks everything is material thinks everything has prior causes Hmm. um so but what it is is it's compatibilist so what that means is that it believes that you can have a deterministic universe and still free will in a meaningful sense Mm -hmm. And what free will looks like for the Stoics is it, 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 the Stoics really care about causes. And so they say, look, when we're asking if a, if a, when we're asking if a choice was free, if it was up to you, if you controlled it, we're not asking if you have free will that exists separate from the causal laws of the universe. We're asking if your character was the cause of the event. Mm -hmm. And so they'll use this analogy. You know, this is an ancient Stoic quote where they'll talk about a cylinder rolling when it gets pushed. And they say, look, if someone calls you, you know, if someone calls you a jerk, they call you a bad name. And you say, well, I got angry because they called me that. They say, well, look, that's not the, that's not the cause of the anger because someone else can insult somebody else and they can laugh it off. Right. Right. The cause of the anger was your character. So the same way the cylinder will roll when it's pushed and the cube won't move, your character is the, is the cylinder, right? When it becomes easily offended, easily angered, and so, um, so that anger, that being upset, that extreme emotion, that revenge, that, that lashing out, that bad thing you do after you get insulted, those are things that are up to you because your, your character was the cause of them. Yeah. So again, a lot there uh, about you know, determinism, compatibilism, free will, but that's, that's the way we look at it. It is fatalistic in a sense that you know, the universe is predetermined by causal laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that... If, if that demotivates you, you might find stoicism demotivating. I think a lot of people in the modern stoicism community actually kind of ignore the metaphysics and just look at the ethics because they find that determinism frustrating. Um, But I think stoicism has some compelling ways. uh, I don't know. So I find that compatibilist picture compelling. Yeah. Um, I'm a compatibilist myself. I I, I spent a lot of time on like uh, problems for physical determinism and, and, um, overdetermination problems. I wonder, <clears throat> so I'm with you on the, on the compatibility of, of free will and the definition of free will really, and, and probably even more responsibility, um, being compatible with being determined. I wonder if you're physically determined, <clears throat> those don't look like the right kind of causes to form virtue, right? Like, so like the, um, the, whatever's going on in your brain, uh, the neurochemistry, 
those aren't those don't look like reasons, right? Like it looks like you should have reasons for your actions, even if they're being determined or not. It looks like those are two different things, a, a neuron firing and a reason. Neuron firing looks like it responds to physical laws. Reasons look like they should be res responding to like laws of logic or, you know, rational laws. If A, then B, A, therefore B. Um, so what do you make of that, that concern for physical determination or determinism, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think you're pulling me into your wheelhouse uh, a bit here. So forgive me <laughs> yeah, if my, I'm, no worries, you know, no I'm going to try my best here. Yeah. I was just joking about this with someone else. I'm so like, um, I'm so entrenched in the ancient arguments. I lose yeah. track of, of some of the modern arguments. Um, I don't think, I guess I, I guess I don't see the risk of losing reasons in the kind of um, dualist sense and the kind of these are things that exist in the mind as, as some yeah. separate spot. I think that what we're doing when we're evaluating somebody who take moral responsibility, for example, or we take the, when we're evaluating the quality of a person where we're making a claim about whether or not they're an excellent person, whether or not they're the kind of person we should admire, um, aspire yeah. to uh, be like. Um, and so when we look at causal interactions, you know, when that person encounters a certain kind of situation, their neurons fire in a certain way that produces, um, you know, the correct result or the mm. way that you want to respond in that situation. For me, that gets the job done. I guess I'm not really yeah. sure. I'm not really sure what's missing. Um, maybe if you could speak more to that about what's at risk here. Yeah. Um, so a few things. So uh, like the just justification of beliefs looks like uh, whatever we take knowledge to be, it has to have some kind of reason for it. Um, if you don't have a reason, it looks like it's not justified. So if, and this is the epistemological route, I think there's others too. And I did, I don't want to put you on the spot and like try to jam all the fill mind stuff. Cause I, I feel you too. I don't know the ancient stuff very well. Um, so I think the worry is that you're losing reasons for your, for your, um, beliefs. And so it looks like maybe you're losing knowledge. It looks like maybe you're losing, it looks like maybe that position is self-defeating. Okay, so why think that? Because um, if if I believe A, I tell you I believe. Uh, well, let me go. Let me go, let me say C. I believe C because I see the entailment from A to B to C, and I saw A. So you know I have A and I have B, so I see the entailment to C. That looks like a uh, that looks like a reason and a logical progression, but really the story is. No, the neurons were firing in a certain way. And it looks like you got syntax without the semantics going on. You have the neurons firing, and that's really the true story for why you hold to C. Not because you saw A and B, but because your neurons fired in the right way. Okay, so, I mean, like, yeah, totally correct me if I'm wrong here. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll take a swing at it. I mean, it seems to me that the the way in which your neurons fire is predetermined by the beliefs you're committed to, Right. Um, so if you're, if you're but disposed, if it, yeah, sorry, oh, sorry, no. go ahead. Well, if, if, <clears throat> if it's, if it's physicalism and physical determination or determinism all the way back, there's no like initial beliefs to start that ball rolling, right? Like if you have initial beliefs at the beginning and, and your neurons are determined by those beliefs, no problem. But those beliefs, where those come from? Well, it looks like the, the base level of this physical reality and that that doesn't have anything to do with reasons, right? That's that's neurochemistry. That's physical. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess maybe the the it's your use of the word reasons. Yeah. Um, 
So when I think of reasons, I think of, um, you know, if I think that money is a good thing mm-hmm. and I want more money, I have then a reason to pick up the money I see on the ground. Yeah. And so those beliefs give me, uh, produce a reason uh, for a type of action or give me a reason. Um, they produce reasons to have a certain kind of response when I see that money. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't see how I'm losing that, that reason. If that belief is, you know, culturally predetermined, physically predetermined, you know, I picked it up because of some kind of long causal chain. Although I might like, again, I might be missing the, yeah. So I don't want to spend like a, a whole ton of time on it. Cause it's not, you know, integral, but it is, it is a fascinating thing. And, and I really appreciate that you're going in on the metaphysics of stoicism where so many avoid it and, and maybe, maybe they're not avoiding it on purpose, but I think some, some maybe. Um, so I like that you're facing it in the true uh, stoical sense and just, hey, let's just own this. Um, <clears throat> oh, man, I forgot where we were heading. Um, oh, yeah. OK, so I don't think it's like if it's causal, if it's uh, sociologically determined. Like I, I think it's I have no problem with like determinism. I think it's a particular type of determinism, physical determinism. Um, so you have you have uh, why did why did you perform action phi? Or whatever. Why'd you perform this? Well, because I wanted to do that because I saw that it would be a good thing because I felt like it was in accord with a virtuous life. Okay. That's one explanation, but there's also this other explanation that is, um, your, your, your fibers were uh, agitated in a certain sense and they, uh, you know, the, the, uh, neurotransmitters crossed the synapse and the action potential went off and that led to this, this, and this, which led to, another fizzing in the brain and they can all it, it it looks like there's two causes for them cool, cool. but but then the the reason cause up top if that if everything is just physical then all the it, uh, the argument's called mental drainage so all the justification reduces down to the physical and it looks like you don't have the reasons up top that you thought you had for performing you know action fire or whatever so we're just kind of subjectively experiencing the physical reasons take place, but not kind of participating them in any sense. Is that the, that, that, that's the, that's the concern. Yeah. That's yeah. The... I think so. One thing that might get us out of this is the very start of Epictetus's discourses. Um, awesome, dude. This is great. I, I don't know. I don't know if it'll work. I'll try my best here. Yeah. Um, he talks about reason as being the only faculty that that's self-reflexive. Mm-hmm. So, because when I hear what you say, I think it, it applies to something like a dog or, you know, maybe a, a less intelligent animal. And I see the issue, right? You might think, you know, this, this animal has a personality, this animal has a type of character, but there's just this kind of, there's just this, you know, this matter bumping into each other in a certain way. So we're mm-hmm. telling a kind of story about it. Um, the Stoics think that, you know, the entire universe is imbued with this active principle, mm-hmm. which they identify with God. Is it the Logos? Yeah, the the logos, logos, um, and that that principle. So there's a passive principle and an active principle. So uh, and that active principle is imbued in everything. So there's no, nothing that's purely passive, but it manifests in different ways. So mm. at its at its base form, it manifests in providing shape. So a rock has that type, um, and then the the next level, it it, it has aspects of growth. Um, so that's something like a plant. Um, you know, reproduction. And then at the next level, it has kind of stimulus and response. This is an animal. And then at the highest level, it manifests in the human mind. 
which actually has the capacity for reflexivity or it sounds a, it sounds a little bit like aristotle like vegetative souls and uh animal souls and yeah yeah so no that is, i mean it is similar it is all quite inspired and all kind of working from the same the same worldview to a certain extent um the the difference with aristotle if i recall aristotle correctly is this idea that we kind of um we have these aspects in us simultaneously hmm. Uh, whereas the, I mean, the Stoics would think that we have these aspects in us because we are, we are literally animals, Yeah. but our identity is located in that reflexive part in that highest part of our rationality. And so this is what, this is what separates us from animals is that we can, um, conceptualize the stimulus we receive in, in language terms. Um, so the, they're called the lecta or the sayable. So when I see a tree, I can think to myself, that's a tree. Yeah. And then because I can kind of separate the stimulus from my reflection of the stimulus, I can then reflect on that reflection. I can think about that, that proposition yeah. and then I can decide to agree to it or not agree to it. That's where I get the freedom. That's where I get the space Interesting. Um, that separates me from an animal where someone, somebody like a dog, it's just input output and you can train the black box in between input output, but yeah. it, it, it's just going to be that. Whereas for the stoic psychology, um, that, that input output, I can actually, um, participate in changing the trajectory of the input to the output, mm. or I can even abstain from making a judgment. I can as assume a skeptical position. I'm not sure if this gets you around your problem. Um, but what it what it shows, I think, is a kind of um, a difference in the Stoic view of human psychology from something like um, animal psychology, without having to have a dualism. I think. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure if it does either. I I'm, I I, uh, I am a dualist, so um, I do want to like you know press them and come on over, folks. <laughs> so I, I love that, but I I think that's so fascinating, and um, I love I love thinking about the distinction between man and beast and uh, and the self that's that's been one of my obsessions for a long time is the uh, the re reflexivity and self consciousness self awareness this kind of stuff is so cool to me so it's really great to hear that the the Stoics had that in mind how <clears throat> how unified is a um, is a Stoic worldview like um, you, you know you you get these groups which are really um, it's really helpful to categorize in kind of the history of ideas type sense of like, here's the Stoics and then here's the rationalists and the empiricists, but you, you hone in on the home in, you, you zoom in on the rationalists and you're like, well, Descartes a little bit different than the other rationalists, you know, like these guys all have different views and I'm not sure that they would appreciate being lumped together. What, what's it like for the Stoics? Is there, um, is there a Stoic worldview that, that, were, were they teammates? Were they buddies? Or were they like, you know, was there rivals? What, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think they were buddies. So what there was is there was uh, definitely buddies that joined the Stoic buddies. Um, <laughs> there was there was Zeno, who was the founder. We're looking at around 300 BC, so a bit okay. after a bit after Aristotle. Um, and then there's the early, that's the early Stoa. Um, then there's the middle Stoa and the late Stoa. And what you see in there is you see um, some conceptual clarification going on. But I wouldn't say any sort of deviation from the main tenets. Mm. Um, the main tenets being, you know, there is a, there is a god or divinity that imbues a materialistic, deterministic universe. Mm -hmm. um, we are part of that universe. Our ethical end is to live in accordance with that universe. 
Um, and because of that virtue, understood as living in accordance with that universe, living in accordance to nature was the Stoic claim, is, is the ultimate ethical end. And then there's some epistemological claims, which is that knowledge is achievable. We can achieve knowledge by um, reflecting upon what they called cataleptic impressions, or uh, I would say impressions of the world that have a certain um, sensation to them. So as long as you're being careful, you can really, you know, you can tell this is true as long as you're being cautious, mm. which obviously the skeptics at the time were like, that's, that's silly. Mm. Um, so these are, I would say that's a quick run at the main tenets. Yeah. That's pretty consistent. What you see in the late Stoa, so the late Stoa, you're getting Epictetus, who I studied, you know, 100 AD, 400 years later, um, Marcus Aurelius, emperor of Rome. Oh, so you're gonna you you count? I was gonna that was one of my questions. Is is Marcus Aurelius a true sto a, sto, a true Stoic? I would think Marcus Aurelius is a true Stoic. I think Marcus Aurelius is a person who wrestles with his Stoicism, right? Yeah. So yeah. again, for those listening, um, Marcus Aurelius, Emperor of Rome, one of the most famous Stoics, and this interesting contrast: Epictetus, who I studied, he was a slave. Um, Marcus Aurelius was the most powerful man in uh, the Western world. Yeah. Um, so, so both people attracted to this philosophy, which is kind of an interesting contrast. And what you see in Marcus Aurelius, what we have him is we have his meditations, which is his journal, his personal reflections to himself was not meant for being viewed by other people. <laughs> we all so, read it now, his own personal yeah, all, diary. Oh, this is super embarrassing. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe he had a crush on this person. Um, <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's a set of personal reflections. Um, and in those, you see him wrestling with it, but I see you see him wrestling with it with the way anybody who's genuinely engaging with the knowledge wrestles with things, right? Yeah, yeah. And sometimes he'll be like, "Well, whether it is all providence or just random atoms floating through the void, it doesn't matter. I should still act this way." And, and hmm. you know, you could dig into that and go, "Oh my goodness, is he a Epicurean? Does he not believe in determinism? Right. Does he not believe in providence?" Um, and it's like, no, he he's he's. Um, He's a student of philosophy, and I would certainly say he falls into the Stoic camp. If if Marcus Aurelius was not a Stoic, then most modern Stoics are not Stoics, right? Well, he's, he's a person that, who, that, that could be true no matter what. Yeah, he could be a Stoic, and the modern folks could not be Stoics because some of these guys out here, man, I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So sure it, it's it's a. I don't want the bar to. If the bar is so high that Marcus Aurelius doesn't cross it, it kind of gives a world worldview that I don't really understand. Sure. Um, or a conception of it. Um. There was there was Aristo, so there was one guy who was kind of the bad boy of Stoicism who broke off from it around its founding, hmm. um, and his idea was so the Stoics. I feel like I'm. I feel like this is brain dumping a lot. So feel free to. Dig this is awesome, it. dude. This is what the podcast is all about. So yeah, cool. this is great. So the the Stoics had this conception that virtue is the only good, but there's such a thing as indifference. So those are external. Those are things that don't have to do with your character. And some of those are preferred and some of those are dispreferred. Okay. And what that means is all things being equal, if, if something's a preferred and different, that's like health, money, friends, all things being equal, you should tend towards these kinds of things. Mm. You, should, you should choose these things if you don't have a reason not to. Yeah. And something that's a dispreferred and different, like uh, um, disease, death, um, you know, physical injury, those are simple ones. Those are dispreferred. You should not do those unless you have a reason. But you know, if you have to if you have to jump in front of a car to save a save a child, that's when you're gonna select a dispreferred and different. Yeah. Because that's what virtue is asking of you, right? Yeah. So and then Aristo, I mean, this is not that controversial. Like it's not that it's not that big of a thing if you're not into the nitty-gritty of stoicism. But his his thing was he was just says indifference are dumb. They don't make any sense because really 
um, he's kind of like a particularist. Like hmm. every particular situation is going to have a correct choice. Hmm. And so what's the point of having these kind of rules about health that doesn't teach you anything or uh, physical yeah. injury that doesn't matter. What you should do is you should consider each individual situation, what virtue requires of you in that individual situation. Yeah. So this kind of categorization makes no sense. Let's throw it out. Um, and so that was, I think that's like the biggest thing we got to schism in stoicism um, wow. that, that ended up being rejected, but that that's kind of the the continuity. That's pretty cool. And uh, it's really helpful that you brought up particularism. Um, because it, it totally tracks in my head. The Methodists would say, do this, this, and this. And the particulars, hey, take them all as they come. Virtue is going to require different things, but there's one true uh, virtuous act or virtuous way to act in each situation. That it, it, I guess they rejected it, though, which is which is sad because that sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's too bad. Yeah. Um, would you would you consider yourself a Stoic? Is it is it like anarchist? not anachronistic, I guess the opposite. Is it like, um, can you do that? <laughs> like, are <Yeah>. you, <laughs> am I allowed? Yeah. Is, is it, is it in my right? Um, so in, in the modern stoic movement, if, if you're not part of this, there's, there's a couple different, you know, I recently, uh, did a podcast episode where I talked about the six different types of stoicism. Mm. Um, one of those is, you know, broicism, which is what we call people who adopt this, like feel no pain, never cry in front of other people, <laughs> be a man. Um, which is kind That's of a appropriation of stoicism, I would say. Stoicism, I like it. Um, then there's like dollar sign stoicism, which yeah. is you know with the S with the as a money sign, and the idea is, um, you know, use use these stoic principles to as effectively as possible run your business for the acquiring of money, which goes against the stoic claim, right? Which it doesn't put money on your you're inverting the you're putting money on a pedestal of character, yeah. and that's you know that means you're using stoicism as a tool. Um, because they have a lot of really great tools for dealing with stressful situations, dealing with uh, kind of, I would say, performance. So it's it, it's it's popular with athletes and for these reasons. But yeah. you're not being a stoic if you if you use stoic tools to make money uh, because you think money is the best thing. You're not being a stoic. Yeah. Um, and then there's modern stoicism and traditional stoicism. And so modern stoicism adopts the ethics and says, look, they got this idea right about virtue being the only good and virtue being knowledge. It's something I haven't talked about, but virtue being knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, but this God stuff, that's a little weird. Don't know yeah. if we need that. You know, this, this, the, the physical laws, uh, their, their description of physics, that clearly we need to throw that out. But the modern Stoic thinks we can preserve the ethics while either throwing out or changing the, the metaphysics. That's really the big divide. And then the traditional Stoic, um, says, look, there's going to be some updating, right? You know, they didn't have modern science, but if we lose, if we lose the metaphysics, if we lose the God, we lose the idea of a providential universe. Um, we've lost the ethics. Mm -hmm. So the traditional Stoics are the ones who are saying we're trying to, I had a discussion with Chris Fisher, who I would say is probably the lead of the traditional Stoic movement. He says, look, we, I don't even want to call myself traditional Stoicism. I just want to call myself Stoicism yeah. because Stoicism always thought you needed the ethics, the metaphysics and the logic. Um, the modern Stoics are the ones who are breaking from this tradition by thinking we can get away with throwing those at, throwing that part out. Yeah. So I appreciate that view because um, it's not just you guys are new and we want to be, there's like the conservative uh, liberal split in everything. And yeah, I could see that happening there, but he's, he's arguing you can't do it because of the metaphysics. The metaphysics is actually important for you to have these uh, ethics. You need the metaphysics. I think that's a really cool move. I, I, 
I think I'm only counting four. I maybe you didn't mean to. I didn't ask for a full taxonomy, but I got broicism, stoicism with a uh, cash sign. I got modern, and then I got traditional stoicism. Oh, I'm now I'm forgetting the other two, which is my oh, fault. I did it a while ago. I'll have to. <laughs> I've been putting you on the spot here, dude. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> I can go back and I can listen to my own episode. Yeah, I had this really I funny moment the other day, um, which maybe the people listening will find this funny and kind of humbling, um, well, humbling for myself and maybe helpful for others, where I was doing a podcast episode on weakness of will. I don't know if you're familiar with weakness of will as yeah. a concept. Acrasia. So yeah. Acrasia, exactly. So it's this idea of you know why we, even though we recognize something to be the best course of action, why we fail to do it. And I published a piece on this in my PhD and I was writing this podcast and I was like, I can't really remember this much about it. So I'll Google it. And when I Googled it, I got a paragraph of myself uh, explaining it to me. And I was like, it's this so is really good. weird. So good. Um, but also kind of humbling because it's like, I'm not the expert and I'm trying to look for an expert and the internet is telling me I'm the expert, which I think is kind of, um, <laughs> yeah. kind of a funny situation. I feel like that now. I, uh, I told you so six good. types of stoicism and I could give you four, but I no. could come back and give you the other two. No, and we, and we got some good ones too. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm so glad you, you brought that up, dude. It's, it's actually super good to see uh, the humility from scholars and just to, to remember that like when people write books, that's their work, that's legitimate, but that's, that doesn't live inside their head either. And it's so hard. Everything I write, I'm like, just stay up in here, please. Can you stay, please, for me? And so actually what I've been doing is I make commonplace books um, or compendiums, depending on, you know, they're, I have a technical term for each one. But before I'm going to go speak on a, a particular thing that I'm supposed to be an expert on, I'll just review through it and just cram that back in there. It's like, it's still mine, dude. I wrote it down. It feels <laughs> kind of cheap, right? But like, I need to do it because I'm supposed to be helping people with, I'm, and so, um, just just to resonate like i have to do that if i'm going to go speak on something so thanks for uh for cold calling just uh being on the podcast here this yeah. is great and for those like for those that are interested in writing or thinking it can be really intimidating like as someone who's done a phd it can be really intimidating when you're starting that process and you go wow these people are way smarter than me mm. and it's like not only does this person develop cumulatively over time skills and knowledge that you know are accessible to you and you can write that way but a lot of good writing is it's not this, it's not just like the person sits down and writes this thing, yeah, right? right? It's like yeah. they write it and they go back to it and they go back to it. So it's a thousand, it's a thousand them over yeah. a thousand days that have produced this thing. And then somebody else that's really smart, you give it to them and they provide comments and then you get peer review. And then if it's, a, a, then you get the editor. So I would really say, um, you know, those listening to this, you're, pro you're, you're almost certainly interested in philosophy, whether academically or not. Um, and you know, you can, you can write some good stuff if you um, think of it as a craft over time and not as kind of an inspiration of genius or something yeah. like this. Man, that's so good. Um, okay, so there's a couple things that have come up that are huge, that are really cool. My, my audience, I have a lot of theists listening, mostly Christians uh, and Christian philosophers. So they're going to be really fascinated and they'll be really mad at me if I don't touch on the logos and the, uh, the divinity uh, in the traditional stoicism or, or just true stoicism if we want to follow that um <clears throat> what what is this what is this logos like um a, a lot of times from christian sources um interacting with the new testament and the stoics who are mentioned in the the new testament and even just looking at the cultural milieu of the new testament people will say well the the stoics of the time um they they believed in a divinity but it was more of an impersonalistic deity uh, uh impersonalistic logos plan 
which you could call God, but but may not be like a person God. Wait, any truth that what, what is who is the God of of Stoicism? What what is this God like? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's um, it's not anthropomorphized in any method, right? Mm -hmm. So it is God is nature. Mm -hmm. um, nature has a type of rationality. Um, but at the same time, you know, you see these appeals. Like Epictetus will refer to Zeus uh, as kind of interchangeable with the Stoic God. Now, whether he's doing that as kind of an educational tool um, to, you know, make sense to people um, in, in their cultural time, that's something. Um, he'll also, um, so, so, so it's not, it's not anthropomorphic in any sense. It's depersonalized and it's identified with the, I would say the, the rational laws of the universe, um, the kind of movement and order of the universe. Mm. So this is. So whether or not you want to call that a God, if you think God needs to have intentions and a will or could change their mind or yeah. could um, be mad at you or uh, even love you, I guess you yeah. couldn't, uh, I don't, you wouldn't say this of the Stoic God. Yeah. What the Stoic God is, is, is this is uh, again, uh, providential universe is still ordered and ordered in a way that is good. Yeah. And so the Stoic conception of life is that you harm yourself when you get out of this order when yeah. you create friction. So um, I think of this as there's the kid and the kid is upset that the kid can't fly. Um, you know, and you, so you're consoling the six-year-old. It's like, well, you're suffering because you've, you've trying to pull yourself out of reality or out of the way things are. Yeah. And likewise, you know, this might be extreme, but someone you love dies and you feel insurmountable grief. Well, you didn't, you didn't acknowledge that you were loving a mortal person. You didn't acknowledge or properly conceptualize that you were loving someone that, that, that dies. Right. Mm. So you've, you've broken yourself out of reality. Yeah. Um, that's an extreme example, but that's kind of the picture here. So that's, that's the God um, that we're working with. Some interesting things, though, is though, I mean, I don't know a ton about Christianity. You probably know more sure. than me. But um, I think about the Holy Spirit, right, which in Greek is the, is the pneuma, the breath, if, I, if I'm right about that. And that's what um, the Greeks called your soul, mm -hmm. was this pneuma, this breath. And the important part about that is that this order of the universe is associated with fire. It's associated with movement. Um, and so when you are animated, when you are alive, you're imbued with this breath, which is the part of you that has the most amount of divinity. I was talking before about how there's different amounts of divinity in different types of objects. Well, this breath has the most divinity. That's the part that has the, I don't know, the highest proportion of God-likeness or the highest quality, uh, quantity of God-likeness. Um, and Epictetus will say things like this. He will say, you know, you have a piece of God inside of you, right? Um, and so there is this kind of connection, um, connection with God of, as not a thing external that you appease or appeal to or deliberate with, but something that's inside of you that you need to understand, that you need to get in accordance with um, and align with. Yeah, that's good. So, so a lot of times uh, you'll hear preachers say, um, a really similar notion, but say we're not living along the grain of reality. Like you're trying to go against the grain and you're experiencing this kind of pain and stuff. The, it's really fascinating what you said about uh, breath and fire and divinity, because uh, in Christian scriptures, we, we also have uh, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, and there um, man is made in the image of God. And how is that? Well, God breathed into the clay of Adam. He formed Adam out of clay cool. and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The I think it's Ruach. Uh, is the old is the Hebrew, and then yeah, Numa would be would be the new one. But it it is this breath, and we 
Yeah, there. Depending on who you ask, um, that is like the rational principle, right? That is something that that makes us different. We're made in God's image, and so in that in that sense, like when we see another human, we know we can't eat a baby, but we can eat a pig. Why? Because we're recognizing the spark of divinity, the image of God imprinted on this being. So that is pretty cool, man. I, I think there's some some uh, some overlap there, some connection that we can make, some common ground. I wonder about. I, I love the providence stuff. I wonder about providence without like a provident, a providential, a providential uh, will. I wonder about like how, how is there providence without a. Uh, Without God guiding, you know, it doesn't seem like God could guide without a will or without rationality, right? Well, for your Christian, for your Christian, for Christian gods in general, yeah. um, Christian God, I'm a bit confused about God sure. in the Christian picture. Yeah. Because this is not somebody who reflects, right? It's not somebody that deliberates. It, God's will does not change in the Christian picture, does it? Yeah. No, no, no. Um, let me think if there's. So it depends. There's there's um, different conceptions of God. Um, classical and neoclassical views of God are going to say no, um, but maybe an open theist God might say that. That that's like the the, the future is open, but that that might be uncharitable. So it's it's hard to say. But on most conceptions in a Christian worldview, no, God is not uh, needing to deliberate in that fashion. God doesn't have uh, uh, not dispositional. All of God's thoughts are current to Him, and so yeah, it doesn't look like He hmm. needs to to reason out things like that. Yeah. So in that case, I guess it, it wouldn't look that different um, in terms of it being predetermined providential. Um, it, it would, we would still want to say that he could, he chose to create the world and create this world in, in this manner, even if uh, I'm just kidding. When was the point of yeah. choice? Yeah. So it depends on whether you think God in uh, created time or not. So if God created time, then there's this, it's kind of hard to say, well, when did he do that? Because before then you're using time language. If, if time is a component of his being, um, then yeah, you could, you could say, well, at whatever time, I don't know what the time would be, but yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it wouldn't be a choice, right? It would be a kind of an unfolding. Um, um, we, we, we wouldn't want to say it's like an emanation, right? Um, so, some people might say that if they go in for like eternal creation, there are folks who do that, but um, uh why would why couldn't he have a desire and then act on that desire? You know, even if you could go in for compatibilism about God as well. It yeah, doesn't no, have to, no, totally. It doesn't have to be libertarian free will and in, in God. Some, I mean, some people say that, some people don't. I'm trying yeah, to hedge all because I know my audience well and I've studied this stuff and it's uh, there's everything you say has you know you're stepping on a landline. Um, yeah, so I mean, great. So I think that's a good point. I think one thing that are interesting here is that this is kind of pre-Christianity. Sure. Um, so. I don't know what the Greek word for providential is uh, that we're talking about here. So that would mm. be interesting to dig into because you can, yeah. I think it's a good point. It's not one that I've thought about. Mm. I wonder if there's almost kind of a, an um, anachronism happening when Christians are reading Stoics and saying, mm. oh, well, this is a providential God, uh, reading that into it. And then if you go back to it, there there is a sense of um, this is the way things are supposed to be. And it's good, and it's it it is a good way. The universe is a good universe, um, but in terms of what grounds that, if it, it's not you know, the choice of a perfect being, um, you know, I could I couldn't tell you on the spot. Yeah, um, this but, is good, man. This is a fun. I love this. This is like comparative religions with uh, Stoicism and Christianity, which is which is really cool. Um, I, I I 
my audience is going to say, well, you know, the uh, the Hebrew scriptures predate the uh, the Stoics and stuff like that, going all the way back, and, and Christians are going to uh, appropriate that. So, I do think that um, there's there's four gospels in the in the Christian scriptures in the New Testament, and the fourth is written by John, and I do think that John is intentionally speaking to Stoics as well as Jews. And he says, in the beginning was the Logos. The Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And so he's he's hitting on dual aspects here. One is he's reaching his Jewish audience who um, who has this word. In the beginning, God spoke, and it was God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light. And so there's this debar, there's this word. And so he's translating that to Greek. But he's also reaching out to the Stoics, saying, hey, what, what you guys say is impersonal, this divine plan. Um, it, it's a person. It's this person of Jesus. And, and the Stoics are going to say no, but he is trying to reach out, which is really cool. So it's anachronistic on purpose, at least in the case of John, because he's trying to convert them to Christianity, which I just think is so cool to see some interplay in the Bible between Stoics and Christians. Yeah, I remember um, I did. So I, I learned some Greek for my PhD and you're translating some parts of the New Testament and like maybe it is that part in John, maybe it's a different part, but but talking about you know giving speeches to the Stoics and the Epicureans, um, and, yeah, Acts 17, yeah, Paul, yeah, yeah. Paul, okay. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I do love that. I, I think that point of that, that being on purpose, that's not something I've ever considered before, actually. The yeah. active interplay where you don't take Christianity's kind of cultural dominance for granted, where it's kind of the, the maybe the cultural minority that has to appeal to the um intuition or the yeah. cultural impressions of the of the majority which is something yeah. different that's not yeah. something i've i've ever really considered um because i kind of stop with christian with stoicism in 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 my study yeah. but really really interesting and the logos again you know yeah i mean you've hit on this right but this idea of there's a rational principle it's within us it is also god it imbues it is within all things um it imbu imbues them with reason and order um and so that seems to connect with, you know, what you, what you were mentioning from the Christian scriptures. Yeah, it's so cool, man. I want to jump in on virtue. And I know that you've, that was like, that was the subject of your dissertation was this apparent uh, tension between uh, Epi in, in Epictetic, Epictetus's uh, moral philosophy. So I wanted to talk about virtue a little bit before jump, jumping into a little bit more of your, the details of your dissertation. Um, when it comes to ethics, it, it seems like uh, stoicism is committed to like a virtue ethics. And I'm wondering if what's right and what's wrong is determined by, um, by your telos. Like is there, there is telos in, in stoicism? Yes, absolutely. Um, for those again, less familiar with this, this is something that's really popular in Plato. It's this conceptualization of, you know, when we're talking about um, something being good for something, you know, what does that mean? Or being a good example of something, what does that mean? Well, you have to refer to its end, to its function. A good pair of scissors is one that cuts well, right? You don't want to, uh, you don't want to measure a wheel by the criteria of a pair of scissors. It doesn't make any sense. Um, likewise, you know, we don't judge. We don't say this is a, this is a bad dog because it can't fly. That's mm -hmm. something we say of birds, right? The, these telos is, you can both create this telos, this end, because you're, uh, you know, you can create a physical artifact as a human, uh, you create a pair of scissors with the intention of doing something, but you can also discover these in nature. These are also part of nature. Mm. And so a lot of the Stoic, well, a lot of ancient Greek philosophy, because now we can bring in people who aren't Stoics. They took this for granted and they said, well, it became a, almost 
I like to frame a lot of uh, a lot of this discussion as an identity discussion mm. because what you are determines your end. Yeah. So, um, for Aristotle, what you were is you were a, a rational animal. So, yeah, it matters that you have character, which is, uh, uh, you know, the use of your intellect and decision in situations to decide what's the best way to be and the best way to act. But it also matters that you have food. It matters that you have uh, social, um, you know, social connections. And so for Aristotle, there was a kind of vulnerability to chance because you could be a great, because you have different buckets, right? Yeah. And you could have 10 out of 10 in the character bucket, but you know, your family dies and your house burns down. Sorry, man, you, you had a bad life, mm-hmm. right? There, there, there's you're, you're a victim to circumstances, right? And the Epicureans conceptualized us as pleasure-seeking beings. So beings that um, wanted to maximize pleasure, minimize pain. And I, I like to say that the Stoics conceptualized us as decision-making creatures. Mm. So we are that part of, we, we embody flesh, but our, our fundamental identity is something that can reflect on impressions and make decisions about whether or not to believe those believe those impressions to be true. We're belief-forming kind of entities. And those are decisions. That's a choice. So we're choice-making beings. And those choices have consequences. They have emotional, behavioral, character consequences. Hmm. And um, so a very famous part of Stoicism that we haven't talked about, you know, we're hitting a good deep level here, which I, I think is really fun, but a really surface level thing of Stoicism that gets thrown around all the time is the dichotomy of control. Hmm. Some things are up to you. Some things aren't. You should focus on the things that are up to you and not worry about the things that aren't. Things that are up to you are, you know, your rational faculties, reflection, uh, choice, um, you know, your your motivation to act or not to act. Things that aren't up to you, property, reputation, your body, uh, your political office. And a lot of people take this as a pragmatic claim. So a claim that says, look, you know, you'll do better if you worry about what's up to you. You'll just perform better. You'll be less anxious. Uh, you'll have less extreme emotions. And in some sense, there's pragmatic benefits. But I really interpret this part of Epictetus as an um, identity distinction. Mm. He says, what is up to you are these things because these things are you. You are your choices. You are your beliefs. You are the, the, the motivations you feel because you believe certain things. You're not your body. You're not your reputation. You're not your possessions. And Epictetus has other passages about this, ones that I love that I find super motivating where someone will say, you know, look, they'll be threatened by a tyrant, right? And the tyrant will say, I'll throw you in jail, you know? And Epictetus will say, you're going to throw my body in jail, but, you know, not even Zeus can control my mind. Mm -hmm. That belongs to me. Yeah. Um, And so that's, again, an identity distinction. So this is a long long answer, but you're- This is good. is Is there an end? I say, yes, there's an end. The end is rooted in identity. What do you conceptualize human beings as? Mm-hmm. Each ancient school has a different <laughs> response to that. The Stoic response is that we are decision-making creatures. And yeah. so what it means for us to flourish is not to have big muscles and be physically excellent in this traditional Greek or Roman way. It is not to uh, have political office. It is to make the right decisions with the circumstances you're given. Because that that's how we judge you, the same way we judge a bird by its capacity to fly, uh, something like this. This is okay, this is really good. And it's um yeah, it touches on some really cool stuff. So uh we're we're like we're the decision making creature, and so a lot of people a lot of 
folks listening are going to say, well, on physical, I, I hate to go back to it, but on physical determinism, um, it, you, you have this distinction between what's up to you and what's not up to you. And it looks like everything that uh, Epictetus would say is up to you is actually not up to you because it's been predetermined by the laws of physics and what you are, which I love. I love this idea that you're not your body, but that's because I'm a, a substance dualist. Um, <laughs> and, and saying like, uh, you know, that, that, that quote that not even Zeus could control my, my soul or my mind. Uh, you know, the, the libertarian Christians, the, the Arminians are going to say, yes, exactly. Like, that's totally right. I'm a Calvinist myself, but um, yeah, they're, they're going to be saying that. So I wonder if, if you're, if you are a bundle of your decisions, um, your decisions don't seem like they're things that can make decisions. It seems like a product of your mind or product of yourself, you know? So, so it looks, it's like what, it looks like there's nothing actually up to you on this view. So the, I, I guess I want to, um, uh, yes, good point. I mean, we're coming back to the original point now, which is the better understanding of stoicism, right? Mm -hmm. But what the Stoics would say, which is maybe compelling to you, maybe not, is something like what, what it means to be up to you is causality, yeah. right? means it's caused by you. Um, so mm -hmm. my decisions but, are caused by me. My beliefs are caused by me. Uh, the, but what are what are you? What are you? What's the thing that's doing the cause? You the are literally the the because we're breaking this down, and this is great. Most people don't push this because yeah. most people come into stoicism from an ethical side. So I'm, yeah. I really love getting pushed on this metaphysical side. <laughs> Thank, thanks, man. That's cool. Yeah, you are the 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 pneuma, the breath, the the part of your body that is of a certain consistency that differentiate like you're you're. It's not like blood because it's not blood, but imagine right. you have this thing flowing through your body. Like an immaterial a, soul or something. A material soul, exactly. That's of a no, immaterial consistency. soul, dude. That's that would that does the that does the work you need. No, but it, is, but it is material. It is material. Maybe they're getting it wrong. Maybe they should switch. They're so yeah. close, is what you're <laughs> yeah, that's right. they're so that's close right. to making sense. They just need that last little jump. Yeah. Um, but it is material. So it's a, it's a material soul. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and, if, they, and so, if, if they went in for like a vitalism, I know that, that that term is kind of like out nowadays, but if there's like a vital. What does that mean? Life force uh, mm -hmm. of some kind where, you know, you can still consider it to be a physical, whatever physical turns out to be. Right. Cause it's like our physicists don't know what physical is. Um, then, then I could see it. Yeah. Or maybe it's like the form of the person, which you know, uh, isn't actually a physical thing, but it's also not like a immaterial thing. It's the form of the person. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think through how they could save this. Um, not that, it, <laughs> not, 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 you know, not that I've like, you know, struck a, a chord or anything. Um, but, but anyways, no, this is, this is fascinating. Sorry. I interrupted you again. Well, the, the, just to, just to bring it back. I think these are fun criticisms. I don't know if I have good responses for you, but I, they're, they're definitely helping me think about it. Awesome. Um, the question was, well, if, if it's all a bunch of matter, what yeah. is you, what is like, and yeah, it is a material soul. It is a, um, something that exists within your body that has a different physical consistency. And so when they talk about character development, they literally talk about the tenor of your soul. They talk about, mm. um, the consistency of that soul. It takes on, it, it physically transforms as you move towards virtue. Mm. So virtue is a, is a material transformation and not only this, but it, it actually attains a type of rigidity when you become a sage yeah. such that it, it is no longer changeable 
So it, it is changeable in the, in the vicious person, the unwise person, and it can move, it can become worse or it can become better. Um, but once you achieve sagehood, it actually solidifies so that once you're a good person, you stay perfect forever. Um, yeah. So makes, in, in, oh, Christian, in Christian terms, we call it uh, sanctification. You're being sanctified. And, and, and uh, we would say like in the new heavens and the new earth, you're at a point where um, you can, you are not non passe picari. You're not able to sin. Uh, and, and, you know, going in on the moral terms, it'd be like, yeah, you're not able to perform vices any longer. So that, that's kind of another cool one. That's the connection. I had, I had no idea that was a thing, but that's yeah. the exact same thing, which is interesting because um, the Stoics got a lot of heat for this, right? Mm. They think that doesn't make, people would say that doesn't make any sense. How could you, how could you see, how could you not sin or they wouldn't say that, but how could you not be vicious? Right. Yeah. Um, anybody can do that. And the weird thing about Stoics though, just to push that a level a step further is that virtue was knowledge. So it's a perfect yes. knowledge of yourself, your position in the universe. And then that, that reveals to you a perfect knowledge of how you should navigate that universe in every moment. Right. It mm -hmm. is, you think of like your will coming into accordance with the will of the universe, the will of God in a sense. Yeah. And, um, but, but, but the interesting thing about that, or I think the funny thing is that has epistemological implications for non-moral truths as well. Yeah. So the, the sage, the sage is the Christian word, or the, sorry, the Stoic word for something like a saint, the perfect person. Mm. The sage literally couldn't trip. You know, they couldn't miscalculate where a step was yeah. because that would be a kind of, uh, it would reveal that they could let false beliefs into this perfect system, which is not yeah. possible for them. This is another another fascinating point in, in Christian theology is whether uh, Christ, who is truly God, truly man, uh, you know, whether he, or not he was a good carpenter. <laughs> and because because if he was a man, he had to grow in, in wisdom and stature. The Bible says that. And could could he have been a, a shoddy uh, carpenter, or could he have you know spilled a glass of milk? And it's like, well, spilling a glass of milk is not a uh, is not a moral sin, but it's a mistake. And if he's a perfect being, and so uh, again, dude, this is fun seeing some of these connections here. Yeah, that's a again, as you said, I'm I I I wasn't aware of these connections, which is really fun. Um, I don't know what it's like. I don't know much about the comparison between Christ and a saint, like how similar though. I mean, I assume they're not, they're certainly not identical, but how mm. similar sanctification is to Christ's status. Yeah. Um, it's, it's growing in Christ likeness. So, so Christian is supposed to be a little Christ, right? And so this is why we have a lot of, a big affinity with the ancient view of philosophy as a way of life, because Christ is our philosopher and we're supposed to be mm -hmm. following him and growing into his, he's the moral sage uh, and he's he's the one we're supposed to be growing more and more into his likeness. And my, we even have the the, the critique uh, with a similar critique as was leveled against the modern Stoics that you you don't get this without the metaphysics. So we got liberal Christians who drop the theology, and you're like, mm, then you don't get the rest of it without the metaphysics. And then we got some some other conceptions of Christianity today, which is not Christianity as following Christ the philosopher in his path, but being a good Republican. You know, and, and it's like, well, dude, that's not quite it. There may be some overlap, but, you know, first things first. So it, again, dude, the philosophy of as a way of life is something that Christians ought to totally affirm. And everyone did back in the day. Yeah. So two things I want to say to that. Um, first is that the Christ-like figure in ancient Greek philosophy is Socrates, right? Mm -hmm. So he's the perfect, he's the perfect person, the person who understood virtue, um, and the person that was persecuted by the masses who misunderstood him and chose to die um, 
in a way that he did not have to die in um to preserve his beliefs to not compromise his character mm-hmm. um so there's 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 some really kind of interesting parallels there and then you have an an offshoot of people who say well this was Socrates's key teaching. No, this was Socrates's key teaching, right? So yeah. the skeptics are going to say Socrates's key teaching is I know that I know nothing. It's that mm-hmm. skeptic belief. The Stoics are going to say Socrates's key teaching was the uh, you know, the primacy of knowledge or the importance of knowledge um and the pursuit of that even at the you know, the risk of of I don't know, persecution or failure and kind of success in the external world. Yeah. Um the cynics, we haven't talked about the cynics because the Stoics actually were an offshoot of cynicism. So when you talk about, we, we had this early question about the breaking and Stoic kind of lineage, the break, Stoicism was the break from mm. cynicism. Um, and cynicism says that, look, Socrates's main achievement was his total pursuit of virtue at the at the expense of social success or social navigation. He mm. was kind of a pariah and that's what we should aspire to. So you get uh, Diogenes yelling from the trash can uh, yeah. about you know the plucked chicken and stuff, yeah. Yeah, or you know, masturbating in the middle of the city or <laughs> sleeping in a barrel, like like just yeah. was a was a weird guy, right? Not like a. Um, whereas the Stoics are going to say, look, you're a the social conformity is a preferred and different, you know, insofar as it doesn't ask you to compromise your character, you should com- contribute to your social community. Yeah. Um, hmm. And Epictetus says things. Epictetus actually is interesting because he looks at the cynics as a calling that is too good for normal people. And he says, really talented people, you you become cynics. You pursue, you ignore everything else and you pursue virtue. But as normal people, we have to be stoics. Hmm. We have to uh, pers- think of virtue as the highest good and the only good, but still uh, kind of, you know, be parts of our community and engage in kind of social norms. Yeah. Okay, so um, I think, again, my audience will be mad if I don't ask uh, two more things. One, one would be um, the role of forgiveness in Stoicism. So that's a, a, a big one for Christians is uh, Christ died to forgive sinners of their sins. And anyone who trusts in him for that forgiveness you know, will be made right with God and be able to live along the grain of reality the way we're, you know, according to our telos in relation, right relation to God. Um so if 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 a stoic is vicious towards uh, his neighbor and comes to recognize that um what do they what do they do how how, how are they to um are there rules for making amends are there rules for who you ought to forgive if they come to uh make amends or are there any are there any guidelines for forgiveness Yeah that's a great question I haven't been asked that question ever so let me take a second to think about it mm-hmm. um Epictetus has this great quote where he says you know the beginner will blame other people, the intermediate will blame themselves, and the advanced will blame nobody. Mm. Um, and I think that's a big part of Stoicism is this idea of when you're unhappy, you you put the blame on other people. When you when when you're a beginner, as you progress, you say, "Look, I've got some work to do." Um, and then as you advance past that, you you know accept I guess, I guess this providential nature, the determinism, the fact that ignorant people will do ignorant things, and then. So two other points now. So now some things are coming to me. One that we haven't talked about is this idea of intellectualism. Yeah. So the Stoics believe that there's no such thing as a animal part of our soul. This is something that Plato argued for. He said, look, we have we have a rational part, but we have our animal part. And sometimes when we do terrible things, when we um, do vicious things, we 
you know, we're greedy. We harm others. Um, we in, engage in pleasures of the flesh inappropriately. It's because the animal's winning and reason should try to control the animal. Yeah. The Stoics don't think anything like this. They think, look, you, you are just a bundle of beliefs. You're a bundle of kind of cognitive commitments, uh, value judgments. And if you do something vicious, it's because you thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, you might be ignorant, or you're certainly ignorant, but it's because you thought it was the right thing to do. And that's why virtue is knowledge, because we don't have any sort of animal part of ourselves to conquer. We only have to have the correct beliefs. Mm. The flip side to this is it, I, I think this belief, when you begin to internalize it, uh, creates a kind of uh, extreme forgiveness or state of forgiveness because you recognize that everybody is making the decisions that they you would do the same thing if you knew what they knew. There's no mm. sort of soul. There's no sort of they they just think they think this is the good, so they're going to pursue the good in that extent. Um, that's the second thing, intellectualism. Third thing I would say, Marcus Aurelius has a beautiful passage, especially funny considering he was emperor of Rome, where he says, you know, wake up in the morning and remind yourself that they that you'll meet people that are ungrateful, you know, vain, selfish. Um, doing this off the top of my head. And he says, yeah. but they're like this because they don't know good from bad, but you understand good from bad. You've understood reason. And so, you know, you should be able to enter these, uh, you know, confront these people with that in mind and not begrudge them, not be angry at them. Yeah. Um, and I guess in a sense, forgive them. Those are the three main things that I can think of off the top. Um, yeah. How does that That's sound? That's great. No, that's cool, man. I, I appreciate that. I think that's a good response. I love that quote, by the way. Uh, it's really good. Um, I've tried to memorize it. So I was I was thinking, like, maybe I can help you out. And I was like, nope, it's not there. I can't remember if you said brutish or what. But um, yeah, yeah. I wonder about, uh, okay, so I, I wanted to just touch on uh, the main question that you asked in your, in your uh, dissertation, which, you know, could probably take us another four hours. Uh, so it's probably not fair to do that. But you'll have to come back on, dude, because this has been so much fun. I would love um, to. Um, so, uh, what about someone, so the Christians are going to be thinking of, uh, St. Augustine who in his confessions, which was like one of the first autobiographies ever, um, maybe I think it was the first autobiography ever. He says, I, I went and stole some pears from my neighbors. Um, they weren't even good pears. We didn't eat them. We stole them and threw them away because we wanted to do something that was wrong. Um, so I, I wonder uh, I think the same thing is true of Plato, where he said, like, yeah, um, you know, uh, wrongdoing is out of ignorance. And if you did know what was right, you wouldn't do what was wrong. Uh, I wonder how you make sense of of people who say, no, I'm doing something because I want to I want to do evil. I want to do bad. Um, is that is that possible? Or are they just confused about their mental states, maybe? Yeah. So this comes up to the problem of equation we talked about before. Yeah, right? yeah, so the, right. the question is, like, well, because the Stoics are going to say equation is impossible. Someone mm. can't do something they think is wrong and then you're going to say well that seems kind of anecdotally really false people seem to do that all the time mm -hmm. um and there's a couple there's a couple ways to get out of this that i think work and so what we what we're interested in is not the circumstances where you regret things because you can obviously change your mind later what we're interested in is the subjective experience of like feeling like you're doing something wrong you know knowing that you're doing something naughty or bad Mm. Um, you know, the example of, the, uh, of, uh, you know, a child stealing pears, that's a great example. Um, so there's a couple things. One is that there's different types of wrongs. So in one sense, you know, you can recognize something is wrong for another person, 
you can recognize that you're harming somebody else, but you don't think it's wrong, right? That happens all the time. I'm doing something that society thinks is bad, but I don't think it's bad. Hmm. So when with that anecdote about stealing the pear, you know, it's not the same as a child putting their hand into the fire, right? Yeah. That that is a kind of that is a more compelling. Um, sorry, I'm I'm just to cut this off. I'm hot spotting because my internet's being weird, so I'm not sure if you can still see. Me. Yeah. My internet might yeah, be a little good. bit more choppy, but that's what I'm going with. Um, so it's not the same as somebody putting their hand into the fire. That is, if, you know, if you had a child who said, I wanted to do something wrong, so I burnt my hand off, that's a bit more compelling about, wow, that seems bad for you, and you did it anyway. Um, yeah. This is somebody who's trying to push against the social norm, right? And and so I guess I should clarify here too that the stoic sense is always good and bad is always rooted in the individual, which might not be taken for granted. So it's not hmm. good or bad in a um, ethical sense. It means, or not in an ethical sense. That's not right. Um, it's it's it. It always means good or bad for yourself. You can't do something that you think is bad for yourself. That's not hmm. possible. Is the view. Um, or the bad thing, the bad thing, um, the bad thing to do as you making the decision, if that makes sense. So that's why the hand example would be more compelling because it'd be pretty clear it's a bad thing for you. People don't tend to do things like that. Um, then the other thing that the Stokes would say is there's actually a kind of, we can have a kind of oscillation of beliefs. We can have a quick movement between two states that can feel like a conflict, but is actually kind of an argument that is. Uh, seems temporally simultaneous, seems like an internal battle between good and evil, right and wrong, but is actually just a flip, a flip-flopping back and forth between being the kind of person that thinks it's good for them to steal the pair and not being that kind of person. Yeah. And I think that that one's really compelling to me. I, that, that one makes a lot of sense. Yeah. There's a shifting, this internal shift, even though it feels like it's one, it's actually, it's actually a couple things going on. Yeah. And then the third kind um, that I talk about this in my thesis is, is, um, the kind of unreflexiveness. So this is the kind of thing where we we don't realize we don't realize what we're doing is against our commitments or our beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so we kind of we we retroactively realize what we've done when we reflect upon it and say, wow, I willingly did that bad thing. But uh the Stoics are, and I would be interested if you have another counterexample, but they're going to be committed to this idea that it is it is impossible. Um it's impossible to do this. And I think, I think another thing that Christians deviate from the Stokes here is there's no idea of, um, and you would know more about this than me, but there's no idea of original sin. There's no idea of a kind of fallen nature. There's mm-hmm. no idea of something that we need to atone for, apologize for, make amends for. Um, we are, we have developed, we, the phrase blank slate, you know, which is popularized by John Locke later on. That's a Christian, or sorry, that's a Stoic phrase. We're born as blank slates. Mm. Um, and then we develop, we we become ignorant because we're socialized by imperfect people. Um, and we uh, rely on our animal senses before our mind develops. And so the animal senses, when you're when you're five, might tell you what's the most important thing is getting food, um, even if it means you know pushing over another kid. And we kind of internalize these. So we grow up flawed, but it's through a socialization process and through and through inhabiting a body. It's not because of any sort of um, corrupt part of our nature in any sense. Interesting. Okay. Um, when you say animal senses, uh, I thought I thought there wasn't an animal component on on a stoic anthropology. No. So so I mean, 
I, I should be careful animal sense. So the Stoics think that we we don't develop reason. There's actually a debate about this. We don't okay. develop reason until either seven or fourteen. Mm. So before that, we are actually animals in a literal like we are we are morally equivalent with animals. But then once um, we oh okay, so it's kind of like an age of accountability maybe where yeah you wouldn't hold a, a child accountable for certain actions because this is not that kind of thing, man. They they can't respond to reasons in the appropriate way. That's exactly it, right? And okay. and so. There, you can't call them virtuous or vicious. You can't, these are the same way you couldn't say this of an animal because they, they literally are an animal. And then they become a rational animal. Again, seven or 14. Some people think 14 is a bit old. Some people think seven's a bit young. Um, but there obviously becomes this point, as you said, this age of accountability. Um, so what happens when we're five is we're not responding to reasons in the way a human, uh, an adult human responds to reason. We're responding to stimulus the way a, an animal does. Yeah. And that kind of um, that solidifies some beliefs about the world, some kind of non-reflective, um, simple beliefs. Yeah. But then, as we grow up, we have to kind of de-untangle um, those. So, okay, um, last potential pushback here. Um, so, and the age of accountability view, unlike a, a Christian view of man, is um, look, we're not holding this person accountable because. Um, they don't have the mens rea or whatever for uh, being vicious or, or committing a sin or a moral wrong. Um, on the Stoic view, it sounds like there's a developmental shift or like a, a sorieties point that once you pass a certain level, when you're seven or 14 or whatever, um, you become a new thing. You become a, a rational being before you were an animal. I wonder what we do with like human rights. Like what does the child, does anyone before that, that point do they have less rights since they are like literally an animal would it be okay to treat them as such it's a great question um i love these questions one thing i like about this and probably because you um probably because you have engaged so much with christianity um is your 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 meeting stoicism where it's at and like and like um intellectually respecting it enough to criticize it um, cause mostly I, th most people I talk to, it's, it's either this, like, yeah, I'm already bought in, like just <laughs> give me the ethics yeah. or it's like, well, that's ancient mumbo jumbo. What does that matter? Hmm. So this is, this is a really, this is a really, really fun debate. <laughs> so one thing, Martha Nussbaum, Martha Nussbaum, famous political philosopher, law professor at the university of Chicago, and also amazing ancient philosopher, very, very impressive woman. Yeah. Um, she, she says that there's a couple things ancient, ancient stoicism gets wrong and, I'm forgetting the other two right now, but one is that they don't pay enough attention to humans or sorry, mm. to children. Sorry. They don't pay enough attention to children. They don't f uh, focus on children in their philosophy. So they have an undeveloped developmental picture. And I, I guess this is kind of the cop out. They also have kind of an undeveloped picture of, of uh, child rights. I would say there's not a kind of a discussion the Stoics would ever have. I would through intuition, think you'd get these similar kinds of arguments with a kind of a potentiality argument. Oh, sure. Kind of, okay. you know, there's something yeah. owed here about, you know, the fact that a child could develop reason se separates them um, from animals. Yeah. Um, the fact that the, the child has a kind of different role in this universe um, than an animal would, which is that role is to, you know, grow up and fulfill their adult potential. So yeah. I think there would be these kinds of appeals. But we don't get these deep discussions of child pedagogy, which for me is really interesting, right? Like in Plato, you're getting, you know, we'll bring the kids in, we'll teach them this, we'll tell them this lie, we'll teach them this myth <laughs> yeah. because we recognize how important yeah. it is. Yeah. But in, in Stoicism, 
you're getting this kind of thing what Epictetus did, right? Like Epictetus ran a school for young, um, young Roman men. And it's this kind of thing of like, well, you know, come here when you're in, when you're a teenager and then I'll deal with you. Yeah. But there's not this kind of picture of what we do with these, you know, five, six, seven year olds. I think, I think Aristotle had something similar, right? Where he's like, you don't teach them ethics until they're old enough to understand it. Yep. That's right. Yeah. And, and it's just fascinating because the metaphysics on stoicism is different. So it's like, yeah, there might be a different reason there, even though they're superficially similar, there's an actual deep, maybe uh discordant view, which is so cool, man. Um, and you're right that like, I, I do really appreciate this. Um, I think it's so cool. You know, I think it's, I think it's wrong in, in crucial points, but it's so fun man. it's so good. <laughs> and it's like, and I just, I love thinking about how smart they were. Um, you know, so often people are like, uh, what did people know a hundred years ago? I'm like, mm, you might be surprised, man. They're probably much more educated than we are, at least when it comes to, you know, the soft sciences or whatever, you know, when it comes to like virtue and what it means to be a man and what it means to be a, a woman and, and a virtuous one at that, like, dude, I don't know if it, that's just a hundred years ago, but then you go all the way back and you're like, what did these, they wore sandals all the time. And you're like, dude, these people invented arithmetic and stuff. Like or they discovered it, like settle down, you know, they, yeah. <laughs> they have a lot to say. Yeah. Yeah. There's something that I, I had this like great moment in a graduate seminar on my PhD where I was saying the reason I love ancient philosophy is that if there's something that somebody wrote about 2000 years ago and it still resonates with me, then there's probably something true there. Yeah. And my professor stopped me and said, no, no, there, there does not mean there's something true there. It means there's something important. And that was a really helpful distinction for me. It's like, okay, yeah. Uh, true and important. Yeah. So it's not necessarily, what the Stoics say is not necessarily right, but it has something important to say about the human condition. Yeah. If we're still interested in it, they could get everything wrong <laughs> and it's still an important, uh, it's still an important perspective if it's still resonating with us. Yeah. That's, that's so fascinating, man. That's a really good point. You had me with the true thing and now I, now I look stupid because <laughs> you corrected it. Um, that's so great. Okay. Dude, you got to come back. This was super duper fun. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that you are able to represent the views so well. Um, that was really, really cool, man. And, and I appreciate you letting me bring in some, uh, some of the philosophy mind stuff. That was fun as well. Um, Michael, where, where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Yeah, great. So, um, I have my own podcast and you know, Maybe we'll do a we'll do a switch room. We'll do some discussion oh, on fun, Christianity dude. for you know the the Stoic community. So I have a Stoic Conversations podcast. I also um, co-founder of an app called Stoic Meditation. Yeah, and so I'm talking about the self improvement stuff, talking about this character development. You think, look, there's a lot of theory out there on Stoicism, or there's a lot of little videos, but there's there we're lacking a kind of a training program. People that want to want to you know work on cultivating this, and I think the Christian community, you know, this would really res uh, resonate with your Christian audience, this idea of, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to read a quote. I'm going to actively reflect on it or mindfully reflect on it. And then I'm going to make a commitment to putting it into practice. And so that's the Stoa meditation app. Um, I have theory courses on there. I have meditation courses on there. Um, but that, that's my community. Anybody who thought anything we talked about that was interesting, that was listening, you know, send me an email. Um, you can find my website, um, maybe we'll, we'll link it in the show notes or something like yeah, this. Definitely. All, all those links will be wherever you guys are getting this at, check the description. You can find below. the links. Cause yeah. always super happy to have these discussions, especially, um, with people, you know, interested in engaging with these ideas. Yeah. That's awesome, man. All right, folks. Well, that's going to have to do it for now. We've been all over the place. It's super duper fun. And hopefully this is just the start of a long, uh, friendship and relationship here. 
uh, between me and Michael, Michael and I. Um, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.